Hello, and welcome to Indie Radio Broadcast number 47. Indie Radio is an indie game development talk show, which is here to bring you interviews with both large and lesser-known developers, recap the latest news, debate about topics in indie gaming, and to give you some tips and tricks for your journey into game development. Today is August 30th, 2014. This is the last broadcast of Season 3. Today, I'll be your host, Brett Hudson, broadcasting live from the U.S. East Coast. Also broadcasting from the U.S. East Coast, I will be your co-host, Ian Jones. And I am Dan Fessler. I am a pixel artist joining in for this session. All right, so we'll get to the news right after this short music break. So we have six news topics today. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so the first one is that we just uh, launched the new Indie Function site. There are some problems right now uh, regarding the radio page. If you go there, you're not going to be able to load any broadcasts. I'm not sure what's going on. We updated the JavaScript to account for the URL change between our local uh, testing server and the live server. But one of the files, even though we went onto our cPanel and edited it, made sure that it was all good, it's still loading into people's browsers with the old version. So uh, we're not sure about that. Hopefully it'll be resolved soon. But uh, the new the new site's up. I've been working on it for, I think, a month, maybe a month and a half. And uh, it it's definitely much better than the old site. And... Yeah, uh, the RSS feed might be offline for a little bit, but that should be up later today. And then it's going to be super nice with how it's set up because the, uh, the radio is all through MySQL now, and we're also hosting all these, all the songs now, all the broadcasts on SoundCloud. So anybody with SoundCloud account can go. Uh, follow us on there or whatever they want to do. And then moving on to not in the function news, uh, Unity 4.6 is in open beta, and there's some pretty cool stuff going on with this, especially the whole Unity UI. If anybody out there has used Unity, they would know that sometimes working with the UI or the on GUI function can be a bit of a nightmare as you have to hard code all the values yourself and Unity has a thousand rules with how the GUI works, and you can literally spend an entire day just trying to get a simple heads-up display working exactly how you want. And the new the the new one just has all these tools that allow you to customize the Unity UI and not have to do as much code, which is amazing. And uh, they're actually making key parts of the Unity UI system open source, meaning that anybody can just come in and customize it. And um, that's that's also the UI, for, or I think that's actually the UI for the actual program. See, this this is. Is this the same one that was uh, bought? I mean, I can't remember. I, th I thought I heard something about uh, Unity purchasing 
the guy who made Ngui, uh, and so it might have some sort of similarities to it. I haven't actually looked at this. I'm looking at their webpage right now. Uh, it's looking cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit confused because <laughs> I uh, I was reading up on Twitter that a bunch of people were excited about it, and from what I understood, like I I, I saw screenshots of um, the code before and the code now, so there's definitely updates for that. But huh. interesting. But yeah, uh, the there's a bunch of fixes for UI and Windows Store apps. Uh, there's a couple changes. Uh, sprite borders can now touch, and UI has renamed active to is on in the toggle editor to match an API change that they made. Uh, and then there's there's new documentation for all the new features, which you know makes sense. But yeah, uh, Unity 4.6 uh, is in beta right now. You can download the more stable beta, uh, which is version 17, or the uh, not-so-tested beta, number 18, uh, over at unity3d.com slash unity slash beta slash 4.6. Or you can just go to Unity 3D and click on the huge banner on the home page. Uh, whichever you, you prefer. Uh, Ian, you want to take the next news article? Our next two news articles are actually quite similar. Mm -hmm. The next one is the Game Maker Marketplace has been released, and it basically allows you to buy and sell um, resources for Game Maker Studio. And anyone who already has Game Maker Studio can simply update to access it. And there already have been more, uh, more than 320 resource packages have been made available to the community. And, and uh, more than 145,000 Game Maker Studio developers are currently in this wonderful world we live in. <laughs> yeah, that 320 resource packages was back on August 13th, like just a couple days after they launched it, if not the day that they launched it. So I'm guessing that that resource packages has skyrocketed. Now, Probably thousands, hopefully. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I'm quite surprised it took them this long to do something like this. Pretty much every game-making software has had a store for quite a long time. They... Yeah. They actually used to have a really small, obscure um, resources page on the old Yo-Yo game, Yo -Yo game site before they uh, switched over. Um, you can still access it at sandbox.yoyogames.com. I think it's under the Make tab. There's a resources, and then people could upload their resources there. You, you could... It was all free? Yeah, it was all free. So there's a lot of crap in there and not so much crap. And you couldn't actually see the resources until you downloaded them. So you didn't know exactly what you were getting. It just said, oh, tile set, grass, and whatever. And it was, it was like the lottery. Oh, come on, this has got to be good. This has got to be good because my, my super slow internet connection can hardly download a zip file. Yes, there are green <laughs> pixels in here. Just what I wanted. Oh, yes. So, uh, I mean, Yo Yo Games kind of had something in there. But, yeah, it's, it's very surprising that it took them this long to actually implement something. Especially after them trying to be more like Unity, I've, I I don't know if they actually are, but I've gotten that vibe the last few years with all the exporters that they've been working on. They they definitely want to compete with Unity. So, yeah, it's it's a bit silly that it took them this long to get a uh, 
Well, it makes me kind of curious, you know, because Unity's store has been so wildly successful. In fact, I know quite a number of people that that kind of make their living off of just selling stuff on the Unity store. It makes me wonder how successful the game maker community is, because it's largely, I mean, although there's quite a number of indies that have made some, you know, successful games with with uh, game maker, it's I dare say that it's quite less in comparison uh, to the amount of games. Uh, that indies have made with Unity, mm-hmm. at least commercially. So yeah. I wonder if the market is going to be like profitable for people who want to milk it. Yeah, that's that's a very valid point because I mean the I think personally the game maker community might be bigger than the Unity community, but commercially wise, it's the complete opposite because anybody can use Game Maker. I we, Ian and I started using you know, Game Maker. In middle school. Actually, Ian, were you in elementary school? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. And Unity's um, got a bit more of a barrier to overcome when you're getting into it, because there is code involved. It's more powerful, so it kind of, it makes sense that GameMaker, I still feel it's more, I mean, you can do a lot with it, but it's more kind of meant to just be very easy to jump right into, whereas Unity, it's kind of more of a, okay, you really have to, either have more dedication or more skill to begin with or things like that, because otherwise it's not, mm-hmm. so, it's not the easiest starting place, is what I'm saying. So going off of that, there's going to be a smaller user base than the game maker, uh, but the user base is definitely going to be more commercially orientated because a lot of those users are going to have more experience, so they're, they've probably been doing this for a while. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to correlate being older, like, late teenagers slash early adult, like, means that you're going to be using Unity rather than GameMaker because you're more mature or something like that, but that's probably what the demographic looks like. GameMaker definitely does bring in a lot of uh, younger people. Uh, but yeah, like Ian said, the next article is nearly identical. Skira... 12 days later, was like, hey, we're going to launch a royalty-free asset store. <laughs> so, uh, basically, all of the assets come under a royalty-free license, and then there's also exclusive pricing. So, yeah, there's, there's free assets, and then there's paid assets. I don't know what else to say. Um, they currently accept 15 currencies, um, Canadian dollars, Chilean pesos, bitcoins, Brazilian reals, and I'm guessing US dollars. Um, and then there's tons of stuff that they, uh, they're putting up on there. There's actually games being uploaded to it, they're allowing that. Uh, game licenses, so you can license your completed games to multiple websites, much like a uh, Flash game license uh, would work, uh, if anybody knows what that website is. Uh, you can also sell ebooks and tools, and I'm, I'm just assuming with all the pictures that they have um, of sprites and stuff that you can upload sprites and music to it, even though they don't have, have those on the list. Well, apparently one of my uh, my favorite tools is up for sale uh, on their store, Spreader. You guys familiar? 
I think I've heard you talk about this in the past, but no, I, I'm not familiar yeah. with it. Spreader is like a, it's a modular, you know, like paper doll style animation tool for games. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, an old coworker of mine and a good friend, Mike Parent, has been developing for some time. They had a Kickstarter some time ago, did very, very well. Uh, and they are getting apparently a lot of support with with uh, Construct. So it's, it's good to see them featured in this news post here. Yeah, you know what, that's where I've seen it, is Kickstarter. Yeah. Right, right when you said that, I was like, yep, that's that's where I saw it. Yeah, now that yeah, I'm sure. thinking, I've seen it in motion, it's it's pretty cool. What, you were about to say something, sorry? Oh, I was just saying, yeah, when it first uh, hit Kickstarter, it kind of created a, a buzz in the indie sphere. Yeah, just everybody was talking about it at the time. Sweet. Well, moving on. We should we should totally alternate Ian. That's too complicated. Okay, so next we have <laughs> PAX Prime. There's a huge list of indie mega booth games this time. Well, I suppose that was true last time as well. But and the time before. And the time before that. Actually, when did PAX Prime start having an indie mega booth? When did the indie? Start I, I think 2011. Games? Actually. Okay. Well, anyway. we reported on the first one, I know that. Yeah, but it feels like so long ago. But yeah, there's there's a bunch of games. We could... <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Honestly. We could... <laughs> None of games in the Indie Mega Booth has grown so freaking large. It's just crazy. Um, let's let's see here. What, let's what are... read the entire list and spend about ten minutes of your time. No. Um... There's also going to be a section dedicated to tabletop games, and the first ever educational game booth. Whoa! <gasps> education! School! Ew! Nobody <laughs> wants... School starts next week for some some people, or started, started last for week. most people already. Yeah. In the U.S. Do, do you really want to be feeding them education right before, or as you're starting school? <laughs> no, but, uh... To me, some games that uh, pop out that I recognize are um, Galaxy, uh, which was featured on the PlayStation E3 booth in 2013. Or, not booth, the, the press release thing, the, the huge press conference, there we go. Um, Hotline Miami 2 is going to be at Indie Mega Booth, so I'm surprised I haven't been hearing about that all weekend. Um, N++. Titan Souls, Team Meat had a voyeur for September, which is a convenient anagram for Super Meat Boy Forever. The internet figured that out beforehand, and uh, it was confirmed when everybody saw the booth. Basically, they're working on... They, they don't consider it a sequel, but it's a Super Meat Boy game that's primarily targeted towards touch devices? Well, I think the, they phrased it as saying that it kind of embodies the whole Super Meat Boy experience, so I haven't seen what it's like, but I kind of feel like it mm -hmm. might not necessarily just be the same as the other Super Meat Boy games in many ways. They might have mm -hmm. to change it so that it'll actually work, because yes. that wouldn't translate across well otherwise. They it, say it's not a one-touch game, and they say it's also not uh, uh, Infinite Runner. 
mm-hmm. despite the name, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I, I kind of know from uh, firsthand that they've been working on this for at least many years now. Yeah. Me, uh, Spunk and Moxie, uh, we were talking to them, and they were talking about already working on a on a mobile uh, Super Meat Boy. So it, it's interesting that it took this long for them to actually announce it. Yeah, they uh, they talked about it on uh, well, Edmund talked about it on our show when we had him two years ago, uh, back in March of 2012. And then I was watching an interview of him last night uh, that happened in January, and they mentioned him in that interview. So it's been in development at least since probably November, December 2011. So almost three years. But then again, they had Mugenics uh, taking up a lot of their time for the last year and a half, which has been indefinitely put on hold. (laughs) Uh, they say that they're going to finish it after uh, Super Meat Boy Forever, but I personally think that they're losing interest in it and don't want to work on it anymore. Yeah. Oh, uh, another game that pops out on here is Rockets, Rockets, Rockets. That's by uh, Kimberly Vole and Mr. Andy... Andy Moore? Yeah, Andy Moore. Have you mentioned nuclear throw? Oh, how did I skip over that? I'm obsessed with that. <laughs> uh, sound self? Oh, yeah. Forgot about that one. And yeah, and then there's a bunch of card games and tabletop games. Uh, the only one that I personally recognize uh, is the Cards Against Humanity team it has two two things coming out called Slap 45 and Fisticuffs. I don't know if those oh, are okay. new, oh, oh, new I products. I think I've played Fisticuffs. All it's right. kind of like an Egyptian rat screw, whatever that game's called. The, it, it's just like a reflex type thing more than anything else. But hmm. it, was, it was somewhat amusing. So. <laughs> but better than playing Cards Against Humanity online? Uh, no. Not, not that we ever did that. What? And then Microsoft also had a huge ID at Xbox event at PAX. Well, before PAX. Yeah, uh, before PAX. And basically, it was a pre-PAX open house for ID at Xbox. You, you could come in and play a bunch of games that are being developed by, surprise, surprise, ID at Xbox developers. So, uh... Basically, any game that you've heard of that's coming out for ID at Xbox was pretty much here. ID at Xbox stands for Indie Developers at Xbox. It's X, it's Microsoft's version of the, I guess, indie, indie support system with Indies Publishing uh, on, their, on their consoles. <clears throat> but yeah, the... I don't see any names that are just blowing up here. Oh, the right right hand side's all the developers. That's why. So Threes is coming out. That was that popular uh, mobile game that inspired 2048. Uh, Cube, Pinball FX2, Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. Super excited to finally uh, get my hands on that. Uh, Legend of Raven sounds familiar. Phoenix Rage. And hashtag IDARB, uh, which is a party game with up to eight people. That's pretty cool. 
But yeah, um, they have the the thing happened on Thursday, and yeah, I don't know what else to really say on that. All the games are coming out within the next year, they said, or at least most of them are. So uh, most of the games on this list will be be played soon. That's about it for our news, so after this short music break, we're going to jump into our interview. So our interview today is Dan Fessler. He's a pixel artist and just a really good artist. Uh, he had been working at Zynga for a while, and uh, that situation is no longer in play. And he is now an indie developer, and he's working on a couple projects. One of which is Chasm, a super cool indie game that was kickstarted a while back. We we mentioned it somewhere, I don't remember. It might have been in the magazine, or the radio, I'm not sure, but... Uh, this is Dan Fessler. Hey guys! I'll try not to give you a hard time for pronouncing it chasm. It's chasm. Is hearts. it? <laughs> right. Oh my but goodness. Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually really uh, awkward to call myself a pixel artist again, because I thought that those days were long over for me uh, when I first jumped into the industry because I, I started off as a pixel artist uh you know because it was back before the iphone and we still needed pixel art for for phones so when i was working at gameloft uh i was doing pixel art but as soon as the iphone came around i kind of stopped doing pixel art and now that i don't uh you know quit my job at, at zynga that's what i'm doing again sweet so, we've got some questions, which is why we brought you on. So, uh, do you want to start off by talking about your childhood, your first games, and how you decided you wanted to help make video games? Well, sure. Uh, you know, I think it all... You, it's just kind of like this weird, happy coincidence for me, for the most part. Um, you know, my, my, my parents were... Or at least my dad was always into computers but not in a very like tech way you know he, he just he liked macintoshes we always had like tons of macintoshes all, all over the house and uh but aside from that you know aside from playing whatever he had on there uh, i never really learned that you can make games until uh, i think it was uh fifth grade uh i'm not sure if you guys are familiar but we used to get these things like these scholastic magazines oh yeah I got this yeah. in elementary school. One year, like near the end of the school year in fifth grade, we got one of these magazines, but it was meant for the middle schoolers. Uh, like they just, I don't know how we ended up with them, but at the back of it, they, they had the section for software. Like the vast majority of it was books, but the back, they had some, some software. And there was this program called Interplay's Learn to Program Basic. Make your own <laughs> video games. And I thought that sounded like so freaking cool. I had, it didn't even occur to me that you could do that. So I bought it, uh, or at least convinced my parents to buy it for me, and uh, I tried to learn how to program, 
failed miserably, shelved it for about a year, uh, and then I picked it back up again, and and it just all clicked. But this language, you know, even though I'm not much of a programmer, I, I do programming slightly, but um, this program had this predetermined 235 color palette. And it was the most bizarre colors you can ever imagine. It was really hard to work with. But coincidentally, any art that you that I had to make for my games just was inherently pixel art because I had to deal with this, pa- uh, this palette that they gave me. Um, so that's a, basically how I started with my art career is I started making art uh, for that... For, uh, we called it learn to program basic LTPB is what we called it. Uh, and I discovered this community called Pixelation, started posting my stuff there, <laughs> uh, learning from the community, and uh, eventually that led to my first job. And uh, where was that? Uh, so my very first art jobs were um, were just freelance for for electronic toys. You know things like uh, oh man, and they were they were awful uh, products. So I mean, not awful in like they were bad products. They were just weird brands. So like I worked on Barbie and Fairytopia, like this TV plug and play game. Uh, I worked on Bratz, you know those slutty Barbies. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically like a gigapet version of Bratz, which is hilarious. Um, just a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, and also there's these cubes where they had these little stick figures on them. Have you ever seen these? They're, I think they're called uh, Cube World yep. or something like You buy these cubes and you stick them together and the, the little stick figures like interact with each other. Uh, I did some art for them. Huh. Uh, so it's just a bunch of whole, uh, little toys. And then uh, after a while of doing that is when I uh, took my first full-time job at Gameloft and moved to New York. Wow, that's, that's cool because I've... I've had buddies uh, growing up that had GameCube, or not GameCube, sorry, uh, Cube Worlds, there we go. Yeah. And would have never guessed that you had made any of the art for that. And Brett was always a fan of Bratz, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, you, you've been with me my entire childhood. Uh, you actually answered our uh, second question there. We were going to ask you about programming and how you got situated with that, but it sounds like you got into programming before you actually got into the pixel art. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have anything to say. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, how did you... Okay, so you, you did all that before Zigga, so I guess my question is how did you end up in Zynga then? Oh, sure. Um, so I've just been kind of writing the, you know, the corporate career wave. I, I've been very fortunate to be doing that. Uh, a lot of people, you know, that start off as pixel artists don't uh, get as fortunate as I was, and they end up getting buried under the tide. But for, for my situation, I was able to stay on top of the wave. Uh, at Gameloft, I was just a junior-level artist, um, and then I... I, I didn't stay there very long. I only stayed there for like like eight or nine months. And then I switched to Glue Mobile in uh, in uh, San Francisco area and doing the same stuff, mobile games, pre-iPhone. But that's when the, the shift happened. That's when the iPhone came out 
and the, the app store was made uh, public and everything in the industry changed. Suddenly we weren't doing pixel art anymore. And the quality bar was just shooting through the roof. Um, so it was really exciting. Um, but after a while of, of doing that, um, I ended up switching over to a startup company, uh, a company called a bit lucky. And the reason why I did that is because, oh, sorry, my phone's going off. Um, they were actually looking for pixel art at the time. It was a, a funded startup company uh, looking for pixel art, which was really bizarre because everybody had kind of gone away from that. But the guy just really loved uh, the style. His name is Jordan uh, Maynard. And the game was Lucky Train. It was a Facebook social city building game. Um, so I, I joined that startup uh, as their first artist. Uh, and just kind of grew with the company. Um, eventually, uh, we released Lucky Train, we released uh, Lucky Space, and that's when I started to learn 3D seriously. I mean, I, we did some 3D for Lucky Train as well, but just kind of small amounts. But when, when we released Lucky Space is when we started doing pre-rendered graphics and stuff like that. Uh, and then eventually, we started working on a game called uh, Solstice Arena, which is a <laughs> they like to call it the, the world's first speed MOBA. The idea was that MOBAs are very, um, I guess, a steep learning curve uh, to get into. So they, they wanted to create a MOBA that was really easy and approachable and focus on it being on a mobile device like an iPad. Uh, and that's the game that eventually got us purchased by Zynga. So <laughs> through this whole path, I, I kept on like, getting a bump in, in title and getting more responsibility. So I started off as a junior artist at, at Gameloft, uh, senior artist at Glue, then lead artist at a bit lucky. And then by the time I hit Zynga, I was an art director. Wow. <laughs> That's quite the, uh, quite the journey. Yeah. You just walked, walked right up the ladder. Yeah. Quite literally. <laughs> All right, so going back to, well, actually no, uh, let's change let's change the question. So with the other artists that want to, um, I guess, make their way up the ladder, do you have any tips for them? Like, do you, did you see any any non luck patterns in uh, your experience uh, going through all of it that other artists sure. could learn from? Um, I can just speak for what worked for me. Um, and, you know, in the games industry, uh, it's a very toxic industry in terms of um, job stability. I, I've seen so many of my friends uh, get let go just because that's just standard practice. Um, so, but the, the only reason that I was able to stick around, I think, was um, just being... Uh, just learning all of the stuff possible. Like I was never focused on one discipline. I always knew like literally every aspect of, of the entire pipeline. And what that did was ensure that, that I was the least likely person to, to lay off because they knew that I can do everything if, if I had to. Uh, so, you know, if you're an artist and you're wanting to get in the industry, I would definitely say just learn all the tools, learn 3d, learn, 
uh, 2D, you know, illustration and and even programming. Programming is I've used even though all of my job title has been art related. Uh, I still have used programming in my job. Um, but aside from that, aside from just learning all of the tools and and uh, mediums, I would say just have a positive attitude. And it sounds really cheesy and stupid, but it's so freaking true. I've known. <sighs> I don't know. In my experience, there's there's really two starkly different types of people in, in the industry. It's like there's the pessimists and there's the optimists, and and they're just so polarized between the two groups. And the pessimists are just never get anywhere. It's always the optimists that that end up getting uh, the promotions and and just generally are happy along the whole trip as well. Makes sense. Yeah, I I can I can even see that in the uh, indie industry. There's there's people who are like, oh yeah, my game's gonna come out, and then there's people that are like, this is never gonna get done. <laughs> <laughs> Although some of them are just realists, they're like, this is going to take years. But... Well, I mean, I'm not saying don't be a realist and, mm-hmm. and don't have criticisms. Uh, that that's totally something different. But I mean, the level of of uh, pessimism I, I I've seen is has been just ridiculous amounts where, you know, they'll, they'll have chats set up dedicated to gossip. And oh, that's geez. like the whole point of the chat. It's like, I just, it just makes no sense to me. <laughs> that sounds just silly. It, feel, it feels like high school. I can do that. Uh, so I'm just gonna... Throw this in quick. If anybody wants to join our IRC, if you're listening to this um, on our radio page, you can... Um, it's, it's actually embedded in there, and if it's not, you can go to bit.ly slash indie, I-N-D-I-E, and then IRC, uh, just all one word kind of in the URL, and uh, you'll be brought to an individual page with our IRC. Uh, Ian and I are in there right now. Uh, Dan was in there earlier. He jumped out, though. Uh, just because neither of us were in there, so he's like, okay, I don't know why I should be in here. But uh, he just rejoined. Uh, the reason I bring this up is you can ask us questions. You can chat with us. Um, we really like the uh, the interaction that the chat provides, so definitely, definitely take up the opportunity and... Uh, Ask away. We don't even care if the questions are necessarily relevant. Sometimes random questions are fun. So, yeah, um, IRC is available, and you can go jump in that. But back to the show. Um, besides the uh, whole uh, gossip, gossip chat that apparently some people make in the industry... Um, can you tell us some of the other difference you've seen between working at uh, Gameloft and Zynga uh, versus developing games as an indie? Oh, yes. It's worlds apart. I don't even put them in the same bucket. Um, <laughs> you know, even when I was uh, working on a, you know, at a full-time job, I, I still made any games on the side just because it, it just feels really different. You know, any games is about making what you want to make. Whereas the industry, it's rarely that way. You're, you're making what you're getting paid to make. Um, so I don't know. It just there's there's a lot of uh, red tape and 
um, bureaucracy around an industry job. And it's more about finding joy in, in facets of what you're working on rather than the thing as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, I had a lot of fun in the industry, uh, you know, the corporate industry, uh, because I always found really awesome stuff to latch onto. Uh, but it's still, I, I never actually felt like I was making, like actually making a game. Like I, that part of me felt missing. Uh, like that's why I'd go home and, and still make games because I still needed to fill that void. So, I mean, that, that's the main difference is, I don't know, it, does, does that even make any sense? I, I guess it kind of does. Ian probably relates to this a lot more uh, in terms of his web dev, because like, when, when he's working on something, he likes to see instant gratification. He likes to see his changes in motion. Um, and I, I guess maybe it's similar to that. Like you, you need to see your art in the game and like doing stuff rather than just making art and sending it off and seeing it eventually, maybe. I mean, that, that's definitely or, part of it. I mean, that could, can be part of it. Um, you know, the iteration cycles are a lot longer in a corporate setting. But but even beyond that, I think it's more about creative control. When you're making an indie game, it's more of like a team effort. Uh, and you, everybody has, like, something awesome um, to play a part. Like, the, the playing field is a lot more level. Um, and it can be that way, in, you know in the corporate setting, but, but not as much. Oh, uh, Mr. Mr. I just switched tabs. Mr. Derpington in the, in the IRC just said, uh, so you kind of feel like a cog in the machine, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I feel like a hog in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's very accurate. <laughs> uh, live listeners, he made a typo, so... I, I suppose we could have just never explained it and just made it sound like Dan made it up on the spot. But you know that, that's actually a very well, uh, very good way of putting it. You do feel like a cog in the machine, and and that you can make yourself happier by trying to feel less like a cog in the machine and trying to you know find more responsibilities you can pick up. But it's that's always like a quest. You have, you actually have to like work to try to find those things um whereas being an indie that's just inherent you just you have to have all of those things <laughs> that makes sense so ian pick a question well speaking of you know being an indie since that's what you're doing now uh, what's your role in Chasm, and how did you get involved with the project? Sure. Um, well, I first got involved in it by backing it on Kickstarter <laughs> before <laughs> I was even an artist for it. I, I, I just saw the game, and it, and it just was freaking awesome. There's um, the artist, the main artist up to that, that point was this guy named Slime. I used to always call him Slim, but it's S-L-Y-M. Um and he just did a really great job. And what really pulled me into the project was, aside from the pixel aesthetic that they chose, um, but it, it kind of felt like a almost like a Diablo, but like a platformer. 
since then it's not as much it's not nearly as much as uh, Diablo anymore but still it's it's still a beautiful game um, but anyway so I, I backed the project and I just thought that would be it and then later on uh, at GDC I, I bumped into those guys and uh, chatted with them and their artists and, and had a good time and then it was right after that that they they tapped me they're like hey we need more art and I was like, sure, absolutely, I'll do it. And that was that. <laughs> I think at that point I was still employed at Zynga. They were kind enough to let me do that on the side. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised. Usually, from Well, I shouldn't say usually. From what I've heard, uh, at least with programmers, is that once you, once you start working at a, uh, a company, they... They, they put you on lockdown and can even put you on lockdown for time after you've uh, you've left their company. So Yeah, that, that second part, they like to put in their contracts, but there's no way in hell that they can enforce that. It's like actually pretty illegal to try to enforce that. Um, but in terms of the first part, yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, typically, I've had to go through this um, an exemption process be able to work on the stuff that I want to work on. And I think it's bullshit, to be honest with you. I, I I think the reason why we make games is because we like making games. You know, I I wouldn't even consider myself an artist before I would consider myself a game maker because I never make art. Well, I, I don't shouldn't say never, but I hardly ever make art for the sake of art. I usually always make art for the sake of a game. And if I'm not allowed to do what I enjoy in my free time, then, then that's like a sin. So I, I really think I should just get rid of that because it it discourages people from being creative and being happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the, on the flip side, like, they, they don't want... Oh, that was, I believe, um, the IRC. Oh, was that, was that on your end, Dan? Uh, your, your username was mentioned, so... Oh. Yeah. Um... I lost my train of thought. What was I just saying? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Derpington has a question for Dan. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go with that. Okay. So, Dan, if you could go back in time, would you pursue a job in game development again? Absolutely. I mean, I had no idea what the crap no I No regrets? No regrets. <laughs> Man, I have no idea what else I would be doing. It's... It, to me, games are like uh, the ultimate art canvas. You know, you can do pretty much anything. You can build your own freaking worlds. Um, so for me, it doesn't get any better than games. I guess I'd, I'd kind of expand upon that question and ask, would you try to find a way to, if you could just do indie games to begin with, would you have started with that, stick with that, if you uh, had easily made like a living off that or something, or would you still want to... Uh, go through and do all the experience and whatnot of working in the industry. Right. Yeah, that's probably what he meant, isn't it? Um, for me, um, I think actually being inside the, the commercial industry was invaluable because I didn't go to college. Uh, I, I used my time uh, in the industry as my education. Um, like, but it was even better because they actually paid me to learn the things that I wanted to learn. Uh, so that's where I learned how to do, you know, 3D and, you know, use programs like 3ds Max. Uh, 
you know, stuff like management and, and tool development and pipeline stuff. Yeah, pretty much everything that you would have learned in school, I just learned on the job. Uh, and you can't get as well of a rounded experience being an indie. You know, you're, you're always kind of throwing things together in whatever way works, and that can be beautiful and fun of it in its own way. But I, the discipline of a corporate setting is, is um, super good to have. Um, and I think I'm a better indie for being uh, or for having been in the industry. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, even with my time at uh, Full Sail, just looking at the way that um, the game projects and uh, just projects that we've had in general have been structured and how how our teachers um, have structured the code or want us to structure the code completely changed the way that I've looked at some elements of game programming. And I, I guess it's the same... Uh, kind of concept there with, uh, you know, just learning um, by uh, being introduced to concepts by people who are very well educated in that field. Yep. So, yep. yep. Sounds very, very similar. Yep. Oh, Blambo left the IRC. Goodbye. We'll miss you. Um, so, with uh, Chasm, how do you approach, well, first off, you're, we should mention that you're doing scenery for the game primarily, right? Yep, I'm doing primarily just the, the environment art. Sometimes some other stuff, but mostly the environment art. So what's the process that you go through when they say, hey, we need, we need a cave, or we need, we need this level, what, what process do you go through mentally when trying to create create the environment? Um, we actually had a pretty good workflow for this uh, for this game. A lot of games, it's much more crazy, but for this one, um, before I even joined the project, there was a lot of um, preliminary concept art that had been done, uh, just kind of describing the, the feel of each of the areas that the game was going to have. Um, and they weren't like polished or anything, they were just kind of like color studies, I guess. So we, we kind of had a feel for for the mood of the game. Uh, so starting off of that, that's when I joined, is basically we had like just a, a very, just one screen mock-up for every area in the game and very loose mock-ups. Uh, the only thing that was polished at that point was the mines. Um, so for the most part, what I, I have done since I've joined the project is take that original concept and just realize it into a fully fleshed, uh, detailed scene um, using all the tricks in the book to get it to look awesome. Nice. nice. We did a lot of, uh, you know, color tweaks throughout as well. We, we really wanted to have each area of the game feel um, always feel like you're you're somewhere unique, and a big part of, of doing that is is through the palette. Um, so basically, what we ended up landing on is pretty much the full spectrum, where each uh, area has kind of like a 
soft color identity of, of you know each of the colors of the rainbow pretty much uh, a lot of this art isn't public yet but you'll be seeing soon i've always loved games that uh like each each area i guess feels like its own magical place when when i was little i remember i used to like actually have i don't even know how to describe it it, it was just feelings like when I, I guess when I was really into uh, the Lego Bionicles back in the day, like looking at the the art for each one and seeing the colors on them would evoke different feelings for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't ever had that experience since I was a kid. But well, I, um, I totally know what you're you're talking about too, because like occasionally I'll I'll get a flashback, not of like a memory, but of a feeling of something that I felt as a kid. Like, I'll look at, like, this old box of some toy that I had when I was younger, and all of a sudden that that ancient feeling will will come back up mm-hmm. again. Uh, and it always it only lasts, like, for a brief moment. And I was like, no, I want that back! I want to be able to get it again. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I totally uh, understand what you're talking about. And it would be great to, to, you know, be able to create those kinds of experiences for other people. Yeah, um, I don't know, I guess, usually when I think about it, I think of, like, uh, bright colors that are crystal, and, like, like, uh, like, crystals that are colored, I don't know. It's, there's no way to describe it. I'm not even sure I fully understand even what triggers it, but yeah. It's cool. Have you had anything like this, Ian? Not that I can recall. <laughs> Mr. Downer over here. Know who the pessimist is in the group. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll talk about my childhood and how I was amazed by the... No, actually, yeah. So... I don't know. I can't think of a specific time is more of the thing, though. It's just kind of a, um, a general fascination or something I guess when I was young everything that kind of made me interested in games to begin with and making them and whatnot but I don't know mm, fair enough but you, you should definitely unmute your mic so you can you know ask a question projects are you working on or just projects in general rather sure um most recently i mean i, I have a, a studio uh that i co-founded with nicholas coder uh, called tilt studios and through that studio uh we released a game called spunk and moxie uh for ios and for android uh we actually teamed up with uh with uh, Fubins, if you're aware of him. He's kind of prolific in his own way in the indie sphere. Uh, uh, Phil Fubins? Or what's his first name? Paul. Paul, Paul Fubins. Okay. Paul Fubins is his name. There we go. Uh, he was the, the designer of that project. Um, then aside from that, I did some uh, really cool work recently with Google on their Project Tango. You guys familiar with Project Tango? I'm not. Nope. Looking it up. Tango. Yeah. It's their new phone that's kind of like 
position positionally aware. Oh, like actually scan the room. So... And... Okay. Whoa! Why? Why haven't we heard of this Ian? It's pretty neat. Um, so what I worked on was a demo for their uh, Google I/O conference, um, where you know it's it's sad because I, I made this really cool uh, kind of voxel-looking art, uh, and I was hoping that it would get some press with that with that game, uh, but nothing. <laughs> I didn't see a single uh, news agency talk about that that game that I made for them. Lame. Did you program the game too, or did you just do art for it? Oh, I just did the art. Um, one of uh, the people that I worked with at uh, A Bit Lucky uh, has since moved on to Google, and uh, that's how I was able to to work on that project. Sweet. Yeah, I'm signing up for the uh, their email list. They, uh, they have an email list for developers. And I guess not developers too, but it's with the development kit. So don't be surprised if uh, you guys hear about this in the future on the show. So, oh, and oh, aside sorry? from those projects, there's a, there's a couple other really well-known uh, pixel art indie projects that I might be very well likely going to be uh, working on in the future, but the deals haven't been finalized, so I can't really talk about it. Makes sense. Wait, uh, just jumping back on this Project Tango. Um, this, is, this is pretty cool. So it's it's a... It's a like, 3D mapping type thing, as far as I understand. So Yeah, so it, it tracks 3D motion, and it also senses depth. Well, it, it's literally also like mapping the environment, though, so it can kind of tell what's going what's around it so like uh there's a section that's titled what could i do with it and they mention a few things such as uh oh you could just capture the dimensions of your home by walking around with your phone before you went furniture shopping so you don't have to <laughs> measure it all out or you go to a new location and well the directions don't have to stop at the street address because it has it mapped out for that area as well so it can get you like right to the door or things like that or if you're uh, visually impaired people could navigate unassisted in unfamiliar places because it can tell what's around them. A bunch of stuff like that, but I kind of want to point out that this just means Google could also, you know, know even more about us, even though they're already <laughs> a big brother. So, you know, it's both wonderful and terrifying that Google already knows so much and now they're going to know literally like 3D maps of all these other locations should they choose to compile them together. That That's both useful and terrifying. So, you know, both. Yeah, you know, I was just, this is way unrelated, but I was just thinking about this concept just like yesterday, uh, how odd it is um, that all of the tech industries in the world focus on retaining data. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, they retain everything. They build these ginormous data centers, one after the other after the other, and they fill them up, like, exponentially uh, faster and faster and faster. But most of that data is completely just useless. It's a waste. Like, I don't... And not only is it a waste, it's like most people don't want their data to stick around that long anyway. Um, it's just odd to me that we don't, as a society, focus more on 
uh, more temporary. Uh, or society of horrors. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a pretty good point, though. I mean, we we keep trying to store things, and they, they keep storing things fairly permanently, like for however long, basically, I guess since well, maybe not since its inception, but for a very long time, there's been the whole thing of oh, if you put something on the internet, it never truly goes away, and that's mostly true. And I mean, it's because of things like that where there's so much where it ends up being copied and redistributed, and like other things which hosted other places that even if we remove it from one, I mean. I imagine it's not even just that we're storing the information that people don't want, but it's probably stored redundantly, too, as in we have multiple places hosting the same thing. Not like a mirror, but like the same content. So like this image is the exact same file, but it's on like five different servers. And that just seems kind of silly if it's not even being actively used, but it's just never got deleted or something. Oh hey, I just got a text message saying somebody try or that or here is your access code for your Twitter, meaning that somebody's just tried logging into my account, um, which means that we could technically bring up the whole whole thing that's been going on with the indie industry the last two weeks. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't want to talk too much about it because it's mostly just gossip. But which it, account did it start with again? Huh? Was it Phil's? Yeah, they basically there's been this whole thing going on with a bunch of indie developers um, and the and game journalists. We're not going to talk about it too much. If if you guys know what we're talking about, you'll instantly know. Um, but basically, eventually, um, some some hackers got into PolytronCorporation.com and posted all of Phil's financial information, his social security number, his address. Uh, router information, login for every single website, you name it. And they started going after uh, other indies. Um, uh, a couple indies that I have on Skype even got their accounts hacked into and they started started interacting with me. And uh, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's still going on, obviously. Somebody's just tried logging into my Twitter. Um, which is I, I stopped caring about the whole scary. drama uh, shortly before. I had no idea that that much information of Phil's was posted. Oh yeah, ev everything of Phil's. Like he, he, they, they have the router information, so you can log into his router. Um, the source control for Fez, um, the address of pretty much everybody that worked at Polytron. That is insane. Yeah, it's it's scary. It was, I think it was a 1.7 gig zip file of information, so you can only imagine what's all in there. Holy crap. It's probably got every grade that he ever got in school. Like, and nothing warrants that. Like, I don't care how they thought they were justified in doing that. Just not, I can't even think of anything that would justify that degree of insanity. Yeah. Wasn't it, obviously, I mean, it, it isn't justified, I agree with you there, I... I honestly don't even see why people still hate Phil as much as they do, seemingly. But, but I think the worst part is that the actual justification that the person had for this, since he did that to Phil, but he also did similar, not as bad things, but still uh, hacking into a bunch of other people's accounts. Like, uh, I think Steve Swink got hacked into on Skype and maybe yep. also Twitter and some other things. Some people like that, it, um, oh, what's it called? It, it just, the justification, I think, was just that these people were all 
um, supporting Zoe or something like that with the whole really the, that whole drama that happened just recently. So don't want to get into that, but. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, any indie developers out there that are in relations to these people or anything? There's there's this cool tech. I I kind of just briefly mentioned it when I got the text message. Uh, it's called two-factor authentication, and uh, it's supported on all the major social networks: uh, GitHub, um, Skype, uh, you name it. And basically, what happens is whenever you try logging into an account, it sends you a text message. Uh, that has a code in it, so then you have to enter this code in uh, on the computer. And basically, if they don't have your phone, they can't get into your account. And if you don't have your phone, you can't get into your account. So it's kind of dumb if your phone's dead. So, but it for the most part, it's it's a really good system, and uh, I don't see any loopholes in it yet. I'm guessing that if you go to a site and were to try brute forcing your way in with with this code, it would only let you enter the code maybe twice or maybe three times before it just says no and then resets the code or something. So it, it seems pretty much perfectly um, perfectly indestructible for the, the general hacker or the modern hacker. So um, going back to what I was just saying, um, any indie devs out there, highly suggest that you check it out. Because um, people are getting attacked, and just not even in our industry, it's just people are getting attacked, period. So you might as well set it up uh, if you want. Um, oh yeah, Google also has it. Um, I set it up on my Google account a little while ago. But uh, we've gotten really off topic. <laughs> uh, thanks to me. So, yeah. Jumping back, Project Tango's pretty cool. Jumping back, let's talk about some more of your stuff, Dan. Uh, you recently had a viral tutorial go around that you you developed called the HD Index Painting Tutorial. Yep. Which is a Photoshop tutorial. You want to tell us a, a bit about it and, uh, I guess, the experience that came with it? Sure. Sure. I mean, to be honest, with you, I was surprised how uh, viral that that thing went. Um, but basically, uh, I kind of mentioned this earlier when I was talking about my philosophy on on uh, you know learning as many tools as you can. Um, but I just love doing this. I love looking at existing problems in new ways. Uh, like for Lucky Train, I, I uh, the, the way that I got hired. Uh, at a bit lucky was they were making this isometric pixel art train game and uh, they needed trains in, you know, I think it was eight different directions at the time. And so that was the art test they sent me. And when I got that test, like, man, there's no way that I'm going to do this for like train after train after train. So I decided to 3d model at first and then uh, go through this process of converting the 3d model into pixel art. And I turned that in and like half the time that it took their, their other contracting artists at the time. And uh, they're like, done, instantly hired. Uh, in fact, not only are you hired, now we're going to give you twice as much art to do instead of eight directions and 16 directions. Um, anyway, so with this pixel art tutorial, it's kind of like the same thing. Basically, I was, I was looking at pixel art and 
I was, you know, I, I've done pixel art for a long time, um, but it's a very tedious process because you, you know, there's usually no shortcuts to it. You, you take the hard brush tool or the pencil tool and you literally lay down pixel by pixel uh, to create an image. But as I got into more and more art mediums, I started to really appreciate these these other tools like the soft brushes and the gradients and and just you name it uh, that comes along with with painting and I wanted to do that in pixel art but it, it, so far there's hardly anything that allows for something even remotely close to that behavior um, there are some programs that do it and it's the term for that process is called index painting uh, which is where I, you know, I got the name for my tutorial. It's HD index painting. Uh, but those methods, uh, you're still dealing with, with like flattened pixel art. You know, it, it, um, it's just approximating for you uh, to simulate the effects of like soft brushes and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, what I did is I found a way to convert uh, high resolution grayscale uh pixel data into um, an indexed uh, color palette, essentially turning it into pixel art. And it allows you to do things like paint with soft brushes and gradients and, and all the dirty tools like transforms and uh, literally anything that you can imagine in Photoshop, you can now do to create pixel art, which is mind blowing. Anybody that has done pixel art uh, before, they'll see this tutorial and, and they just they can't even believe their eyes. I couldn't believe my eyes when I first discovered it. Um, and I've been using it before I even posted the tutorial. I, I was using it a little bit, trying to figure out the ins and outs of it. Uh, I was using it on Chasm a little bit. And then I posted it, and it shot up like over 100,000 uniques on my website. It's just something crazy in just like a, a span of a few weeks. I had no idea that people cared about pixel art that much still. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the, the rundown of it is, I mean, is there anything specific that you guys wanted to know about it? Uh, no, we just wanted to, uh, talk about it mostly. Sure. Um, it's, it, it is really spectacular. I'm so, sur I'm surprised nobody figured it out sooner. Cause how, how long has Photoshop been around in these tools, you know? Well, I mean, I have to say it isn't exactly the most straightforward process. Uh, I mean, you've always been able to uh, index a painting in Photoshop by, by converting it to an index color mode. But once it's been converted, it's flattened. You know, you can't continue to paint it with soft brushes or anything like that. It, it just blocks you from using those things. Uh, but with my method, it allows you to uh, uh, continue painting. Uh, but it does it by stacking, uh, like, a series of four or five, I forget, um, adjustment layers. So it's, like, these series of steps that get stacked on top of your painting that enables this to happen. And I, I think it's because it's, like, so many steps to get it set up that it wasn't thought of before. It's not that it's it's very difficult to understand. It's just being the first person to realize that you can do it is was the tricky part. Uh, you know, for anybody listening, if you guys wanted to read about the tutorial that we're talking about, you can go to my website at danfessler.com, uh, 
and then you just click on the blog and you'll see the i think it's the first post in my blog yep and anybody listening to this in the archive um we have a link to dan's site on the website it's his name you just click on his name so there you go and uh i suppose maybe we could probably also put a link straight to it in the show topics might as well yeah that's true oh oh and then it beeped because you put your url in there and it referenced your username yep that's it and uh I've, I've gotten some people complaining at me that I didn't explain it well enough in the in the blog. So if you know if anybody listening to this reads this this tutorial and they still have questions, feel free to contact me and, and uh, I'll be glad to clarify some stuff for you. Would Twitter be the easiest way to contact you? Uh, yeah, Twitter works. Uh, my username is just at Dan Fessler. Very easy. And I'm guessing it's on your site too, somewhere, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, it online. is. My Twitter is on my site. You can email me or or whatever. Pretty much any public mode of communication that I've listed. Yep. Perfect. So, uh, are there any more tutorials in the work? Do you have anything else up your sleeve that you're planning on yeah. releasing? So, I, I definitely want to do more of these, because there's a lot of tricks probably not as cool as as this one uh, at least how people have seemed to receive this one but there's been a number of, of things that i want to share uh probably the first of which is i'm going to build upon the hd index painting uh tutorial with a uh, with a sequel that talks about doing fx animation recently i, I made this really cool demonstration of uh, animated fireball it looks like it would be in uh, a metal slug or something, um, which is impressive because that game, you know, is notorious for, for being like insanely well animated for pixel art. Uh, and I was able to create a similar effect in just a, you know, an hour or less. Um, so I'm going to be posting the tutorial on how to create that fireball effect um, in Photoshop using that method. I uh, also. Uh, I'm going to be giving a talk uh, about these tips and tricks coming up at Indicade. Mm, uh, it's yeah. The, it's part of the game you track. So if you guys are going to Indicade, come see my talk. Yeah, it might be. Um, Indicade is happening in October, right? Yes, yes, October 9th 10th. to the 12th. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta contact them and see. See if I'm going. Huh. Yeah, so if you guys are going to go to Indicate, come come see Dan and possibly run into me. <laughs> Got two people to look out for there. Um, yeah, who else is going to Indicate this year? Do you know? Oh, me? I have no idea. I, I've never been myself. Um... So it'll be interesting to see who actually does go to those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking through their looking through their site. Oh, the full list of speakers will be announced soon. Um, yeah, it looks like they're still 
putting together everything. Yeah, I'm not sure if I was supposed to announce it yet or not, because it wasn't really public, but oh well. <laughs> Oops. Eh, it's just, it's just indie radio. It's all good. Not like anybody's listening. Oh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, probably. Not too many. Because we've been on hiatus for a while, and... How long has yeah. it been since the last one? Uh, June. Okay. And before that, November. Yeah, we've... It's not too long ago. We've been taking a bit of time since I've been busy with college, but that's not not an issue anymore. Yeah, that's over, dude. Why'd you uh, tell us about that? Yeah, so um, I have some opportunities that have been presented to me, and I've been thinking about... Um, getting out of college for a while. I don't really like saying dropping out, because... I don't know, it, it just sounds like you're quitting. But I've I've got stuff that's available for me. Um, I've, I've got a few gigs that I could do. Um, one of which I can't really talk about. And then another one's a web, a web dev gig uh, that's actually about an hour away from my home back in Minnesota. So, uh, I was thinking about doing that. Um, it was it's because of a uh, a, ne- a networked friend, um, one of my friends from middle school. His older brother uh, runs a web dev company, and I've always been into web dev. I mean, Ian and I built Indieverse, and we're working on the second iteration of that. And uh, my buddy's older brother has always been keeping an eye on it, and he he asked me if I'd want to do that. So. Yeah, I, I've got a few things, and I just, I I feel like I'm just wasting time at college and not really learning anything anymore. It's just, I'm putting in a lot of time and not getting as much out of it as I would just working and learning on, on the job, I guess. Well, I wouldn't call it dropping out either, uh, in your case, because the whole point of college is to find a job, right? Mm-hmm. And if you leave college for a job, then I consider that a success. <laughs> suppose, yeah. And then Ian still got another year of high school. You slacker. What's taking you so long? <laughs> oh, and he's he's gone silent now. It seems like the most fitting thing to do is just give you the silent treatment. <laughs> As if I don't get it enough. Okay, we can stop bickering like a old married couple or some shit. Isn't Anyways, that what we're supposed to do on the show? Honey, you know that's not what we're supposed to do. Good point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've we've gone through all of our questions. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Is there... Any anything that you've been working on that you want to talk about? Do you just want to talk about something random? You know, I don't have anything that you know comes to mind. If, if you asked me that question before we did the interview, I would have written some stuff down, but I can't think <laughs> of anything. All right, so um, this is your last chance. If you want to ask Dan any questions, jump into our IRC. It is available at indiefunction.com/radio. Scroll to the bottom of the page; it should be there. Um, and if it's not, then I've got two bugs on the site. 
that I gotta fix. <laughs> or you can go to bit.ly slash indieirc and uh, jump in. Uh, we're going to do this for, or we're just gonna talk to Dan for another two minutes before we go to the credits. So you got a pretty limited time span to jump in there and uh, chat with it. But yeah, so in the meantime, um, oh, Wit said, oh, where are you? Oh, never mind. That's that's to somebody in the IRC. Uh, so what what project have you had the most fun working on uh, in your entire career? Oh man. Um, I'm going to have to say my current one. Uh, so far, Chasm has been the most fun. It, it's odd because um, all, after all these years uh, doing pixel art, doing art for video games, um, like I, I used to, as a hobby, I'd always paint, you know, pixel art uh, mock-ups of, of platformers, but I never really got to work on any of them. So this is the first time after all of these years that I actually get to work on a pixel art project that I would have made for myself anyway. Uh, so in that sense, it's definitely the most fun. Make the games you want to play. It's always good. Play the games you made. That you want to make? No, no, that you made. <laughs> well, that just seems a little conceited or something. Just, you know. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I needed to finish it off. Okay, so Jerpington said, here's a random question for everybody. Um, how do you think pixel art will transfer to stuff like Oculus Rift? And before Dan takes this... Voxels. <laughs> Voxels. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Um, what, what's his name? Uh, Sas? Uh, S-O-S? Sasowski. Yeah, Sasowski. Yeah, Sas Sasowski. Um, yeah, he... Uh, he was working on a pixel-based game for Oculus Rift, and it looked amazing. It was all purple. It was like a ba black background. It had like this neon magenta purple, um, and then a bright neon Easter blue. And it was it was weird. All I saw was a screenshot of it, um, but it looked really cool. And I can imagine that it's going to uh, look good on it. And technically, um, like I, I'm not sure if you mean like a 2D game, uh, because I know they they've done some 2D work, uh, such as the Legend of Zelda remake for it. Like they took the original NES Legend of Zelda, and they basically made it 3D. The menus were still 2D, and the way that that worked was really cool. Um, all the menus were available at one time, just depending where you were looking. You were looking at a different menu. Um, and then the game was 3D, they, but it used all the 2D uh, textures and just made them flat, like an old Doom, Doom game, I guess. Uh, and that, that definitely worked. It, I mean, it didn't look super good, because those graphics are really, really old. Um, but I, I think pixel art has, has a potential on the Oculus Rift, uh, whether or not it's actually a 2D game or if it's a 3D game with super pixelated textures on how flat does, objects. How does a 2D game work on the Oculus Rift, though? Just yeah. layers, parallax layers. Oh, okay, fair enough. That actually you know, interesting. Personally, I, I think it doesn't work. I mean, I, I'd be open to you know, somebody proving me wrong with an awesome screenshot or something. 
but I think it would need more than a screenshot. I'd actually need to see it because yeah. my my guess is that you know already when I play on the 3DS, like 2D games that have that parallax effect, things <laughs> already seem kind of like it's way more apparent that they're paper thin, and it looks cheesy to me. Um, so I, I'd only imagine that on the Oculus Rift, it's just gonna almost break the immersion for you. Ooh, speaking of paper thin, I want to see Tearaway on the 3DS now. That that could be really cool. Or it's just I'm not 3D. Aware of it. Uh, Tearaway? It's yeah, it's a huge PS Vita game. Everything in the game is really made out of paper. Oh yeah, I've seen this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. It it was like the first Vita game to really utilize all the systems controls. The first um, Vita game to use all the systems controls was a book. Wait, what? Oh, ha 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 ha. Oh my god. I was like, I don't know about this project. Well, but yeah, um, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so nobody jumped in the IRC, so we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this up. I'm gonna play some music. Thank you, Derpington. Yes, thanks, Derpington, for, uh, joining us in the chat. It was, got a few questions, and we had a good chat during, during the deal. Uh, and to Dan, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, if you want to stick around and chat for a few minutes uh, after the show, uh, feel free to. Sure. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Yep, no problem. Thank you for listening in to broadcast number 47 of Indie Radio. This broadcast was broadcasted live on 1000 mics and was recorded using Avocity. All music was found on Newgrounds coming from Ichigo Chapel and Assorted Artists. Thank you again for listening and we hope you have a great weekend.